Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening today. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Our podcast episode today is supported by Sanitarium. The podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. This podcast is for your information only, and we advise you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. So today I um, have the pleasure of speaking to dietitian Tim Casatari about his recent literature review on plant protein and health outcomes. Um, and those include muscle mass and strength, cognitive decline, body composition and satiety. Interestingly, Tim's review actually found that plant proteins are a stronger predictor of health outcomes than total and animal protein. And today we'll also touch on just the upcoming review of the Australian Dietary Guidelines, which offers an opportunity to elevate the importance of plant protein foods, um, particularly legumes and nuts, and encourage all Australians to consume more plant foods in their diet. Tim Casatari is from Nutrition Research Australia. He's an accredited practicing dietitian and change maker in global nutrition and human health. He has over a decade of experience conducting world-class research and using, using storytelling to give it impact. He's also led national communication and education programs, nutrition strategies for some of Australia's largest food brands, and health claims substantiations. His passion is solving nutrition problems using science to help make the world a healthier place. Well, good luck and welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you so much, Jen, for having me. It's great to be here today. So you have a bit of a, a mixed sort of uh, skill set in industry and, and research, but can you just give us a, a quick um, tour of your career as a dietitian and how you got to the position you're in at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I've, I've always been a research nerd um, and I've been lucky in my career to have a, a number of um, fantastic research dietitians te teach me what they know, including Dr. Michelle Slander and Dr. Flavia Fayetmore. Um, but I guess where my career is interesting is I've been a dietitian for 12 years now, and I've sort of, I'm a research dietitian that specializes in translating science. And this really stems, when I think back to it, there's, there's two things that happened very early in my career um, that made me realize the importance of research translation. So the first was way back in uni, um, we had a, a university assignment to translate a, a research topic of a choice in nutrition. And I decided I'm going to do this incredible fact sheet and I put all this effort <laughs> into making it the best fact sheet ever. As students do. <laughs> and thought it was brilliant. And um, my friends decided to um, take a, a, um, a trending pop song at the time 
and, and change the lyrics and make a fun nutrition song. And it was so innovative and so clever and so brilliant. Um, it, it just, um, and you know, everyone was talking about it and sharing about it. And obviously no one was talking about my fact sheet. So it just um, made me realize the importance of translations, translating science to give it impact. Um, and the second is, again, when I was a, a university student, I was working with a, um, an exercise physiologist, a, a very good one. And we were discussing um, sort of doing one-on-one -on -one client sessions. And I was talking to her constantly about the latest research. And she sort of took a step back and said, Tim, typically it's not a case of um, so much getting people to know what to do. They already do know. It's really a case of getting people to actually do it. And that those words have stuck with me throughout my whole career. And I've now got I've got a bookshelf uh, in my room here. It's got about 50 different books on marketing. I've went and done postgraduate studies in coaching, psychology and behaviour change. It's become a bit of an obsession of mine now to, to not only be good at research and do world-class research, but then to be able to, to translate that. And it's taken my careers now, taken me to working with lots of the leading um, food industry companies in Australia. And now I find myself as Director of Translational Science at Nutrition Research Australia helping to do world-class research and then translating it. Okay. Well, we won't ask you to sing the rest of the podcast. <laughs> okay. We'll just we'll stick to talking it through, but we'll rely on your communication skills to, to help us understand your literature review that you've recently completed on plant proteins and health outcomes. So can you just give us uh, the overall purpose and of the review and, and the process that you went through? Yeah, absolutely. So Plant proteins are a hot topic. They're probably the last 10 years we've seen a, a large amount of research in this space. They weren't really talked about much in the way they are now sort of 10 years ago. And I anticipate the next 10 years again, we're going to see a, lots more research coming through in this space. But essentially what my colleagues and I did is um, we did a, a scope of the literature uh, for Nuts for Life using a systematic approach. So we looked at uh, the effects of plant protein on key health outcomes. And a summary of our research, we did this about two years ago now, and a summary of our research you can find on the Nuts for Life website. And just recently we've completed an, an update of that literature scope, again using the same systematic approach, uh, this time for sanitarium. So your, your sort of overarching question was the impact of plant protein on health outcomes. Is that what you're Correct. looking for? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, and there's a lot of conflicting reports, aren't there, in the media now about the relative benefits of different types of protein. And I think it can lead to confusion for consumers about, you know, is there one better? What are the relative um, merits of animal versus plant proteins? So from your review, does the protein source matter when it comes to the health outcomes? Yeah, it's definitely a hot topic at the moment. And um and yes, we absolutely found type of protein matters. And this is not new news. Whenever we, we do a bit of a, a literature scope, I always do just a bit of an investigation and try to understand the topic. And uh, protein is a very interesting one because if we go back right at the beginning of modern nutritional science, which is the beginning of the 20th century, um, came across a a very interesting study um, published on in 1914 by two biochemists, uh, Thomas Osborne and Lafayette Mendel. And what they did is they um, 
essentially got a, a bunch of baby rats and they fed them a diet with starch, fat, and a single source of protein. And um, they used corn protein in, in their study. And what they found is the rats, when they fed this diet, they got very sick. What was interesting is if they just replaced a small proportion of that corn protein with whey protein, um, the rats not only stopped getting very sick and losing weight, but they thrived and, and they were very healthy as, as they'd expect from a rat on a, a normal diet. And then they, what they did is they then went one step further and they took the corn protein and they just added two amino acids to it, lysine and tryptophan. And again, these rats thrived on this diet. And this um, study is you know, a, a groundbreaking study in the world of nutrition. It's informed how we've thought about protein types um, over the next 108 years. Um, and, I mean, all dietitians, and their conclusion was from this work and, and subsequent work is that plant proteins are an incomplete protein and they're an inferior quality source of protein. And, and I don't know about you, Jane, but I know me, I've, I've definitely talk to plant proteins being as incomplete and, and inferior quality. And um, while this research is very important for, for some areas like protein and gmail nutrition, feeding animals, developing total parental nutrition, in our modern health environment today in Australia, what we actually find is that um, our way of thinking about protein needs to turn completely around um, in order to maximise the health of Australians today. Yeah, so in those original studies um, when they put lysine and tryptophan into the, the feed, were they acknowledged as essential amino acids then or did that sort of lead to this concept of essential amino acids? Well, that was part of the um, discovery that there's yes. essential amino acids, yeah. So in your, in your overall review, what were the specific health outcomes uh, that, that you actually looked at um, and what did you find about that interaction between plant proteins and those outcomes? So we looked at many, and I'll take you through them one by one, but just to give you a bit of context about um, protein and how different types uh, can affect different health outcomes and how they work, I just want to take you back to a study done in 2006. So this was a time where low-carbohydrate, um, high-protein diets were trending. So, you know, no different to any other year, really. No. <laughs> um, but, but there's a, a group of researchers that um, wanted to understand what were the long-term health effects of this way of eating, because a lot of this was based on sort of short-term studies showing reduction in body weight, increase in satiety, et cetera. So what are the long-term effects of this way of eating? And these group of researchers were from Harvard. They included Walter Willett and Frank Koo, um, who I'm sure many of our listeners have yes. heard. And um, they looked at a cohort of women from the Nurses Health Study and basically scored their, their diets based on uh, their level of macronutrients. And, and when they looked at the people that ate in this way, this low-carb, high-protein way, what they found is that there was no association between that way of eating and coronary heart disease. So essentially, well, that wasn't better for, for the heart health. It wasn't any worse. But then when they, were, they went one step further and they then looked at, okay, well, does it, it matter by the type of protein? And what they found is that people that had these low-carb, high-protein when it was based on animal sources also had no re relative risk change in terms of heart disease. What was interesting is the people that had the low-carb, high-protein diet when it was based on plant protein uh, had a significant uh, reduced risk of coronary heart disease. 
Mm. And so this is um, gives you an idea around, yes, the type of protein matters. But of course, this is just one study. Um, and those people that had higher plant protein intake also had more fat, fat from, from plants as well. So what we really want to do is look at the most recent systematic reviews and meta-analysis in this space to understand how does this data or does this data translate to other populations so in terms of i know you asked what health outcomes we looked at so we looked for where there's been systematic reviews and meta-analysis of health outcomes first so that's the 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 highest level of evidence so i'll take you through a few the first is all-cause mortality there's at least four of those study types in all-cause mortality the most or the largest was published in 2020 in 31 prospective cohort studies. And, and what they found is that there was a slight risk reduction for total protein and all-cause mortality. So that means that people that had a higher protein intake um, had a slight re reduced in all-cause mortality risk over the study period. Um, but interestingly, when they looked at the source, it was driven by that. So um Animal protein didn't have an association with all-cause mortality, but plant protein did, and plant protein was protective. They also looked at uh, risk of mortality from cardiovascular disease. Uh, total and animal protein had no association, but um, plant protein had a significant uh, was associated with a significant risk reduction. Uh, there's another systematic review and meta-analysis, um, this time on type 2 diabetes risk. Um, and again, we found a similar thing. So um, that was that the type of protein was important. In this case, total protein um, and animal protein was associated with an increased risk. And when they did looked at it further, it seemed that it was red and processed meat that was largely driving that association. But plant protein... Um, was protective overall. So uh, non-significant protection for men, but a significant protection for women. So that, again, mm. shows us that the, the type of protein matters. The, 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 the asterisk around this is that this is all observational work, yes. which is very important, but we have to keep in mind that it doesn't show causality. So it shows that people that eat more plant protein uh, are generally better health outcomes. But, of course, it could be due to things like other lifestyle factors, social class, et cetera. Yeah. So these are do... associations that we're looking at. Yeah. Correct, correct. And they do control for some of these things, but we can't be sure of causality. So what we then did is we then looked at, well, what about intervention studies? Uh, and there's a number of systematic reviews and meta-analysis of intervention studies. So I'll, I'll take you through a few, a th a few mm. quickly. The, the first was a 2015 one that included 13 randomised control trials on people with type 2 diabetes. And they looked at interventions, randomised control interventions that replaced animal protein with plant protein. And, and in the meta-analysis, they found significant reduction in HbA1c, fasting glucose and fasting insulin. Uh, in 2017, there was a very large uh, systematic review meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, 112 um, trials. And uh, this was on cardiovascular outcomes. And they found a reduction in the risk of, oh, sorry, they found a reduction when these are head-to-head -head trials, animal versus plant protein. Plant protein had a reduction in LDL cholesterol, uh, total cholesterol uh, that was non-HDL cholesterol and also reduction in APOB. And finally, a more recent uh, 2020 uh, SLR meta-analysis, 
begin on um, cardiovascular disease risk factors. This one was on people with high cholesterol, and they found in their meta-analysis additional benefits, including reduction in triglycerides, the LDL cholesterol, and an increase in HDL cholesterol. So, so what this shows us is that uh, across the board, we're seeing this consistency in evidence. And this is quite novel in nutrition. We, we yes. have dietary guidelines that we recommend to people every day that are sort of based on observational research, but aren't really supported consistently from the intervention studies. And, and here we have a case where that is um, happening. So it's a very important um, body of research and a very exciting body of research that shows that the type of protein is important for our health. And to put this into a bit of context into people's diets, do they, all of these studies have, are the levels of protein consistent? Or how do they define what um, high protein, are they just dividing it into quartiles or like what makes a high protein, a high plant protein diet versus a high animal protein diet? How do they quantify that? Great question. So we've talked about a whole, I was just talked about a lot of different study types there. So it varies by study types. In the observational research, typically they look at the population and they'll um, look at, you know, maybe quartiles. So then they're yes. looking at what are the high consumers versus low consumers. Um, in the intervention studies, um, it's typically a, a head-to-head trial. So they'll have yeah. a standardized diet. And then there'll be one group that's given an animal protein food um, or meal or supplement, whatever it is. And, and, and again, another group that's given a plant-based one. Um, so it's a direct it's replacement, a, basically. Yes, correct. Yeah. And the doses obviously vary across the, the studies. But what, what's interesting, in, I mean, if we take that large um, Canadian study of 112 RCTs, they looked at it across um, different doses in their subgroup analysis. They looked at it across different populations groups, so those with high cholesterol, those without, um, men and women. They did all these sort of sub-analysis and they mm. consistently found an effect. Yeah. So I think, you know, it sort of makes sense logically that risks of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, those sorts of health conditions would have a reduced risk associated with a plant protein-based diet because you're getting all the other benefits of plants as well. So as you said, you imagine that they're getting different types of fats and they're getting a lot of other micronutrients. Um, one of the areas that I guess has been sort of more controversial or of interest is the muscle mass and strength aspect because I think people often associate with animal protein and that sort of complete protein notion as being really important for um, muscle mass and strength. And obviously that's really important when we look at sarcopenia and um, ageing as well as athletes and all that sort of thing. So what, what's the evidence around plant protein diet for muscle mass and strength? Yeah, this is definitely how the outcome I was interested to look in myself. Yeah. I know, um, you know, we, we sort of um, know that animal proteins in general are uh, superior than plant proteins when it comes to muscle protein synthesis. What we looked at, though, was, um, you know, what about when it comes to muscle mass, muscle strength? There was a, a, a SLR meta-analysis of 16 RCTs published last year. And interestingly, what they found was no significant difference between animal and plant proteins. Now, the effect uh, sort of 
you know, trended towards animal protein, but wasn't quite significant. What the researchers then did is they did a sub-analysis by age. So they looked at interventions done in people over 50 years and in interventions under 50 years. And in people under 50 years, animal protein was superior for plant protein when it came to building muscle mass. But in people over 50 years, there was no difference um, at all. Uh, and that's, you know, typically the age group that we're recommending protein for more. Um, and I think that this is a reminder that just because animal protein is superior in general when it comes to muscle protein synthesis, that doesn't necessarily always translate to improvements in muscle mass or muscle strength, which are mm. these long-term, more practical outcomes across all population groups. Yes, and I guess it's also confining it to one element of the diet, isn't it? You're just looking at you know, that particular thing, whereas people are eating a whole diet. So having plant proteins, you get all those benefits from the additional nutrients, as we've just talked about. Um, so so that's, that's very promising, particularly when we look at, such the move to plant-based eating generally, not necessarily proteins, but it's reassuring that muscle mass can be maintained um, with ageing um, with a, a plant protein-based diet. And which I guess thinking about the ageing population leads into cognitive decline, which is another big area um, of research. Is there much about protein intake and cognitive function? Well, I'm sort of taking you through the, the health outcomes where the main body of research sits, but there's a lot of um, research coming through, so that I call more emerging research, like um, researchers are really turning their attention towards these other health outcomes. So when it comes to cognitive decline, we know that diet's important. Um, there was a, a prospective cohort study uh, analysis, the two prospective cohort studies um, published earlier this year, uh, and what the researchers found is that the replacement of animal protein with plant protein was associated with a reduced risk of cognitive decline. Um, so, so again, you know, more research for plant protein potentially being a benefit. It's still emerging research, um, but there's more and more research showing when it comes to older age, um, plant protein may be, be have more beneficial effects. And I guess those both of those areas of research cognitive decline as well as plant proteins have both are both exploding now aren't they because and so we're going to see a lot more coming out in Absolutely. the yep. overlap of those two areas we have an exciting few years ahead yeah, <laughs> yeah you better get busy um <laughs> so i guess leading on from then the muscle mass um what about body composition generally uh, yeah, so we came across one um, or a couple of studies, but I'll tell you about one. One, uh, it was a cross-sectional analysis of a randomized controlled trial. So this randomized controlled trial was a 16-week intervention that gave participants uh, a plant-based diet, and, and obviously they lost weight over the 16 weeks. But but there's a variation in the in the weight loss and the changes in body composition. So some people are losing more fat mass than others. And what the researchers found in their uh, analysis, which I thought was interesting, is that the um, increase in their plant protein intake uh, was a strong indirect um, correlator to the amount of fat loss amongst these participants. So um, the type of plant protein, again, emerging evidence, but it could be having a, an important role in body composition as well. So, so does that mean, sorry, just to think it through, um, we all often talk about, you know, on weight reduction diets, uh, if you don't have enough protein just in total, then potentially you'll lose more muscle mass 
um, proportionally to, to fat mass. Um, are you saying from the limited studies we have available that even having, um, if plant protein is the primary source of protein, if you have enough, that also um, is positive for muscle versus fat loss? Well, yeah, based on the evidence we have, it would appear as though um, the amount of plant protein uh, is important yeah. um, for determining body composition and, and fat mass. And then I guess the last one is often when we talk about higher protein diets, um, it's they're promoted because of their satiating effect and that people talk about the fact that if you have a high protein intake, then you're fuller and um, therefore um, energy control um, intake is easier. Does type of protein have an effect on satiety? Yes, there's an enormous amount of um, research in this in this space. I think it started, at, I mean, for a long time we've sort of talked about it, but certainly I think I remember at the start of my career, everyone in the scientific conferences were talking about protein and, and, and its satiating effect. A lot of the trials are done using either animal proteins or soy protein, um, but there was an SLR published um, just recently that looked at um plant proteins other than soy and, and non-animal proteins. And so think, think, think things like pea protein, oat protein, rice protein, etc. And what they've researchers found is that these plant proteins are also more satiating than um, carbohydrate or fats, um, which we know is true for the animal proteins. And also um, their effects seem to be comparable to the animal oh. proteins as well. And so were there, and were there any other sort of interesting findings that you came across that perhaps were less expected or that you weren't you know, aware of? Well, I guess I probably came in with this preconceived idea that, you know, when it comes to older age, um, you know, maybe we need to, you know, ensure that we have enough high quality complete proteins. And that was probably my preconceived um, idea. There was a paper published earlier uh, this year, another prospective cohort study from, from the nurses health cohort, and they looked at frailty, uh, which is basically a combination of different um, things that include um, cardiovascular fitness, muscle strength, yep. fatigue. Um, and what they found was that the replacement of animal protein with plant protein was associated with the reduced risk of frailty. So again, when we take a step back and we look across all of the data, it's clear that the type of protein is important and um, that plant protein um, favours uh, health outcomes across the board, but this is likely to be true across the lifespan as well, which was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think, you know, I guess our other preconceived idea is that people that are older currently are meat eaters or they will eat animal protein, but we're going to see generations coming through now uh, ageing that are much more plant-based eaters. Um, and so it's reassuring to know that there are those positive associations with plant proteins as there are with animal proteins. Absolutely. So if we look forward to the dietary guidelines, which are currently in the process of, of being reviewed, um, what do you think this this research that you've looked at now um, and the whole review of the literature in the area, what should or does that mean for the Australian Dietary Guidelines going forward, in your Good opinion? Question. I want to start with a little story. Um, so a couple of years ago now, uh, I had a friend that asked me about, he said, Tim, how do I get more protein into my diet? And at the time I said to him, look, you know, don't really worry about 
getting more protein in your diet of all the nutrition priorities, you know, getting more protein probably isn't the one. I mean, we know that the Western diet has a hundred grams plus of protein a a day. We know that RDI for comparison is 50 to 70 grams, depending on age and sex. So um, it's, I didn't see it as much of a concern, but um, when I dived into plant protein intake, um, there's not a lot of diet in Australia, but across the Western diet, it's actually very, very low. Uh, so we're looking at probably 30 to 40 grams of plant protein intake a day compared to about 100 grams plus of total, uh, much lower than, than other diets across the globe. So I think what we need is really strong leadership from you know dietary guidelines and, and health authorities around addition recommendations when it comes to protein type. There's a few that I can talk to. So the first is the Canadian Dietary Guidelines, which came out in 2019. So they um, actually collapsed the sort of traditional protein foods with dairy foods into a protein food group. And they said that among these protein foods, consume plant-based more often. So it's a clear and direct messaging that um, when you're going for protein, the type matters and that plant protein is, is very important. The second uh, example is from the United States. The American Heart Association last year released their dietary guidance for cardiovascular health. And they have a number of recommendations. One of them is to choose healthy sources of protein. And they actually developed a hierarchy for protein sources according to the health. So meat or poultry was last uh dairy products were above that fish and seafood above that and top of the list was plant proteins and the recommendation is to consume mostly protein from plants and the third which i'm sure most of our listeners know is eat lancet so this is dietary advice for both human and planetary health and they actually have different food groups when it comes to protein so they've got a plant protein food group and they've got an animal protein food group, I guess, or category. And uh, they rec- the plant protein is, is much bigger in the healthy eating plate than the plant protein, and they recommend that protein should primarily be sourced from plants. Now, when we look at the Australian dietary guidelines, I mean, I look through what their recommendations are, and I got this quote directly from their summary booklet, and it says, choose lean meat and poultry, fish, eggs, and all plant-based alternatives. Now, Jane, what what does that mean to you when you hear those words? It means take it or leave it. You might like to have some plant-based proteins or you might not. Yeah, I I had the same. So basically saying have some protein, but the source doesn't really matter. Um, But from the science, the source absolutely does matter. So, I mean, I don't want to be too critical of the guidelines. They were developed in 2013. A lot of these researchers knew it. But, but we are currently reviewing the dietary guidelines at the moment, the NHMRC. And so it's a very great opportunity now in front of us to update and align our dietary guidelines to these other dietary guidelines and health authorities globally um, and to uh, promote the plant-based protein sources. And for me, it's not about um, undermining animal protein foods. It's just simply about recognising the health benefits and properties of plant protein foods, appreciating their underconsumption and elevating their importance as part of a healthy diet. Yeah, I think that that is a good point because 
that would still be my answer, to tell you the truth. If someone says, oh, I need to eat more protein, I'd be like, oh, look, we're all eating way more protein than we need to, you know, until you maybe get to 80 years old or something. Yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't need to. But it is that just reassessing where that protein is coming from. And it's as you say, it's not about eliminating things because, let's face it, it's what we're trying to get away from is this concept totally. of elimination of food groups. But let's think about where you can actually bump up your plant proteins, which also obviously offer a lot of other benefits as well, but we know that they also offer similar benefits to animal proteins um, now. So, yes, I'll change my answer next time someone asks me about that <laughs> as well. As well. Um, another just concept I wanted to sort of run by you and get your insights on is is essential versus non-essential amino acids. And we mentioned it briefly um, when we started talking. Um, but I guess some of the research that you've uncovered has sort of challenged our traditional definition. And, and I feel like it's a bit like fibre. Like when I studied and we're going back many, many years, it was like, they're soluble and insoluble, end of story. But now yes. there's resistant starch and there's so many different types of fibres and the prebiotic fibres and, you know, it, we can't just limit it to soluble and insoluble anymore. And I, I wonder if that's a similar situation for protein now. We can't just, or amino acids, we can't just say essential versus non-essential and that's where the story ends. Yeah, so this was probably the most fascinating part of the research, so I'm excited to share this. So essentially what we asked was, okay, we see all these health effects of plant protein, but what's driving it? And Jane, you mentioned earlier in our podcast, I didn't want to interrupt you, but you, you mentioned something around that these plant protein foods, of course they improve cardiometabolic health outcomes because we get with them an array of other nutrients and bioactives. So the good fats, the fiber, the prebiotics, the vitamins and minerals, polyphenols, whatever it may be, which is true. Um, but interestingly, when we look at these randomized controlled trials, the, the systematic reviews and meta-analysis of these that find benefits to the replacement of animal-based plant protein, what they've done is they've done sub-analysis by whole food interventions and protein isolate interventions. And the, um, both the whole food studies and the protein isolate studies show improvements and the effect sizes are equivalent between the two. So what this says is that um, the plant protein content in and of itself in these foods is, is at least in part driving some of this association. So then the question becomes, okay, well, what is it about the plant protein in and of yeah. itself that's driving this association? So I want to give you just a very brief biochemistry lesson i'll keep it simple yeah good because i'll cut you off if it goes too complex <laughs> <laughs> so essentially as you would know um, when we eat protein it's broken down into amino acids and these amino acids um tell our pancreas to release two hormones so insulin and glucagon and it's uh, amino i mean we often think about you know the carbohydrates being broken down to to glucose having an effect on these hormones but Amino acids have an, a very um, significant effect on these too. But what's interesting is not all amino acids have an effect on these hormones in the same way. And um, there's lots of variation based on the, the type, also other things like food format, et cetera. But what we find across the board is that typically our essential amino acids are a more potent stimulator of insulin and our non-essential amino acids are more potent stimulator 
of glucagon. Now, what that means is that if you were to increase your plant protein intake, you obviously get an increase in your non-essential amino acids after the meal, which is going to have a more potent effect on increasing glucagon and, and less than of an effect on on increasing insulin. So, so you're getting, if you think about a glucagon to insulin ratio, you're going to see uh, more glucagon and less insulin after plant protein. Now, this is important because glucagon and insulin both have um, a, a big effect on a messenger compound called CAMP, which is activated through the adenyl cyclase enzyme. Now, CAMP basically you know, like I said, it's this messenger compound. It goes throughout our body and it sort of tells our body to break things down. So we would see a reduction in cholesterol synthesis, reduction in triglycerides, reduction in fat storage, which are all of the effects mm. that we see when we eat plant protein. And this makes sense if you think about it, because um, these non-essential amino acids are, um, are non-essential, it makes sense that we don't that we can break things down, whereas when we eat our essential amino acids from animal protein foods, um, we see a, an increase in insulin, which is more telling our body to store things, which again makes sense. If you think yeah. about how we've evolved, it would make sense to, to store things we can't make in our body and we don't have to be in that storage state when we're having the, the non-essential amino acids. So there's obviously lots of things going on in the body beyond this, um, but I, I picked this one because it's a reminder that just because an amino acid is not essential doesn't mean that it's not that its intake is not also important for our health yeah so non-essential does not mean non-important it still has <laughs> benefits in its own right so which yes. i think is a good thing because we do tend to say oh well we have to get the essential ones but non-essential ones oh we can get them ourselves you know we don't really need it so mm. it is it is an important insight isn't it that getting yeah. an external source um is is health promoting um for us so We've got dietitians out there who are seeing patients um, on a daily basis. Um, what does this, you know, accumulation of literature mean for them? What do, what should they be sort of um, talking to their clients about or having in mind? Well, I'm hoping it completely transforms their way of thinking about protein and plant protein. Um, so I mentioned before that, you know, through over the last 100 years, we've come and dietitians are leading the way in this in talking about plant proteins as incomplete. So I think um, there's three things I just want to get people thinking about. So the first is that um, the Nutrition of, of Academy and Dietetics and many others have now said that the definition of plant proteins as incomplete is misleading and outdated in, in our context today. And that's because we don't eat individual foods, we eat whole diets. Yeah. Um, the second is um, there's a group led by Dr. David Katz and Dr. David Jenkins um, who have basically said, okay, we disagree that animal that you know our current definition of protein quality because it's just limited to amino acids. Mm. We also need to take into account their effects on our health and the effects on the, our environment, which we all know is very important. And they've developed an alternate model for rating protein quality that takes into account health effects, sustainability effects, and amino acid composition. And in that model, it's actually the plant protein foods that typically are rated as the higher quality proteins, um, which is interesting. And the third is just thinking about, you know, the non-essential amino acids in a different way. And, you know, why is it that our body has evolved to make some amino acids and not others? And could it be 
that um, you know we've evolved to make non-essential amino acids because they're actually essential to our health. So um, I guess the other thing, the other message that I took out of this um, that people can maybe take away is one a universal message I think transcends nutrition, and that is that when you actually uh, take a closer look, uh, when you look closely, um, you will see that sometimes it is the very things that we've always considered um, to be as incomplete that can actually be the source of our greatest value. And so if um, you're giving just three really practical ways that dietitians um, can talk to their clients about um, increasing their plant protein intake. What are the sort of, do you see as the simplest um, ways to do that when we talk about translating it into a marketable sort of message? Well, I'll give you four. So the the key sources of, of plant protein are legumes, nuts and seeds, Grains, particularly whole or high-fibre grains, because uh, it is the, the bran layer that carries a lot of the um, protein in grains, and also soy products, so things like soy milk and tofu. And if we think about these food chains, the consumption of these foods is incredibly low. The ABS data tells us average intake of nuts and seeds in this country, about four grams. Legumes is about four grams as well. We know most people are eating refined grains and hardly anyone's eating soy. So there's a huge opportunity in front of us, I think, as dietitians to to elevate these foods uh, and to promote these foods. And, and this is something I'm very passionate about because we hear every day in nutrition about, you know, eat less of this, avoid this, this is bad for us. And here we have an opportunity to share a positive nutrition message that, that can improve the health of us all. And I think that talking about the, the protein content of these foods and, and the data that we've talked through today, I think it can help. Uh, there's an opportunity there to package a really nice nutrition story about their role in health for yeah. all of us. And Tim, I think that's they're really um, helpful messages and has clarified it, and certainly for me, because as I said at the start, like, it seems to make sense that plant protein is going to help with cardiovascular risk because I just associate it with all the other benefits that plants provide you. But but the point is that the plant protein itself has benefits regardless of the other nutrients that are going along with it. Um, so that's good to know. And that we need to try and realign our protein. We all know that we... Australians in general are getting plenty of protein, but let's just have a look at where that protein is coming from and try and improve the, the blend of the sources there. So um, I will try and do that myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Jen. That's a great summary. And I will just add, um, if, if our listeners are interested in, in this, um, the review of the dietary guidelines is happening at the moment. Um, you can subscribe to the stakeholder list. So just Google review of the Australian Dietary Guidelines, take you to the NHMRC website. You can sign up to the stakeholder list and they'll keep you updated on the process, on what they're looking at, and you can have your say on the draft dietary guidelines when they come out as well. So I think it's important that dietitians are involved in these because they only happen every 10 years. Um, so just wanted to flag that as well. Exactly. And we will put um, that link in the show notes with this podcast so that people can easily find it. So. Thanks so much for your time today, Tim. I'm very glad that, coincidentally, legumes are on my menu for dinner tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm not just making that up. They really are. Um, <laughs> so I'll feel very virtuous having those. And we'd also like to thank the Sanitarium for supporting our podcast today. So thanks very much for your time, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. 
To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.